Truncated Thoughts presented by Prescouter, where we have short discussions on big ideas in healthcare. I'm Jeremy Schmier, and I'm joined by two very smart people, Dr. Ryan LaRanger and Dr. Joao Guerrero. Recently, we've seen some unusually fast approval times for drugs like the COVID vaccines, although these are unusual circumstances. Just this week, we saw an approval for Biogen's Alzheimer's treatment, which historically has been a very difficult disease for drug makers to build treatments for. The drug approval and clinical trials process is a fascinating topic, which is what we'll be discussing today. Joao, why don't you start us off by giving us a bit of context on the current clinical trials landscape? Yeah, certainly. I I would say that when you look at clinical trials, I I see it as being three different distinct um, you know, parts of it. You have the startup, you know, so you need to design your trial, you know, select um, and you know, just get everything ready. You know, and then you have to actually conduct it where you need to get all the people uh, to do it. You know, do the study that you need to do Make sure you're getting the, the data, you know, monitoring uh, the people that are going over the trial. And then finally, you, you need to close it out. So you need to analyze all that data, you know, write your, your report and submit it. And hopefully you, know, you got enough and convincing data to, you know, to tell the regulators that, yes, this is a drug that works. And all this process, I know there's a lot that can be improved. There's a lot of pain points and there's a lot of innovation happening. Ryan, you want to add anything to that? Yeah, sure. I'll add some more categories. Slightly different, um, just in terms of the way that uh, we're seeing things. One of them is, or you can separate it in terms of how the clinical trial is run and how the clinical trial is set up. So you have the sponsor and one big driver of cost and time for clinical trials can just be picking the right site. Uh, which is actually really complicated, especially if you're dealing with a disease disease that's more rare. And so there are some groups that are developing machine learning software tools that are focused on, for instance, site selection. So that way, when you pick a site, you sponsor the studies there, you're more likely to get a large amount of patients there quickly. And the faster you fill up your clinical trial, the faster the clinical trial goes and the less expensive the clinical trial is. Um, They can also help with patient selection, right? One of the big challenges in clinical trials right now is uh, diversity, for lack of a better term, right? It's you want a better, more, a more diverse patient population in your clinical trial, because that makes it more likely you'll actually have uh, the drug that you're working on work on more patients. So when you say diversity, are you referring to ages, demographics, how sick somebody might be or where they live? Can you expand on that? Age, race, sex, and uh, sometimes other things also, but it's really just getting that balance more right has traditionally been a problem, right? There've been a bunch of studies on this, but uh, so that's sort of one side of it. And I don't want to spend too much time there because the other one's also really important, which is more operational for the individual hospitals. Uh, fewer patients are coming in in person. There are more remote visits. And so there are a suite of tools being developed, which are focused on how do I run a clinical trial when the patient isn't here? How do I reimburse them? How do I check? How do I give the data back to the sponsor in a way that's safe and secure, right? Some of that's operational. Part of that is just HIPAA compliance, because if you have someone who's part of a clinical trial and you're sending data in that form, if a bad actor comes in and captures it, HIPAA violations are just ruinously expensive. 
And I think maybe I'll, I'll start with that first part that Ryan mentioned because um, I know I think there's there's an, a lot for us to discuss on both hands. Uh, starting with that first part, you know the the fact that you know getting the right people in the right places is is getting you know increasingly difficult and important. You know cannot be overstated. It's I've I've spoken with some I know clinical trial um, runners that they've told me. You know, like we wanted to start a new trial, we can't, there's not enough people. We can't find enough people with the right profile uh, for us to actually run this trial. And we actually thought we had a good drug, but there's already too many being tested. So so that's a, a big problem that people are, I know, tackling um, in a different way. You know, I, I've seen a few interesting uh, things happening. You know, one of them is actually, um, there's, there's been this uh, kind of crowdsourcing uh, uh, efforts where companies such as, um, I know, CareClick and Hero, they pretty much use community influencers, that's what they call them, to go and find the people. And it was like, hey, you know, if you know someone that suffers from this, right, you go, you find them, you enroll them, you know, and it's how they kind of, you know, they tell you, hey, do you need people for a trial? We're going to get people knocking on people's doors to get you the right patients, you know, and that's that's one approach. And they they seem to to be working well. They've, they've done, I know, a few interesting um, collaborations so far. Is, is that sort of what happens as you get further down? Because as I understand it, the population size has to grow as you go from phase one to phase two. And do these companies find that they have to really knock on doors to get the numbers up as the trial matures? Is that really when that starts to happen? It, it can depend on the disease. You know, one thing that we're also seeing is that you're getting more attention to the so-called orphan diseases, right? Which typically have lower populations numbers or they're just going to be more, you know, more spread out. You know? So what Ryan was saying in terms of, you know, finding the right center can be more and more challenging because there might just not be enough people around the center to make it economically viable for you to actually, you know, conduct that study there. Um, you know, I think this is a bit of the reason why we've seen, I know, companies such as Uber and Lyft made make their, you know, health arms, you know, Uber Health and Lyft Health. They're pretty much working on transportation. They're moving, you know, patients from one place to where they need to be so that they, they can connect those trials. Oh, gosh, I love those crowdsourcing elements. I mean, and this sort of highlights an underlying problem. It can be really, really difficult to get patient data from hospitals when you're trying to set up these trials, particularly historical data and to extrapolate it. There are sort of two drivers for clinical trial, so there are many drivers for clinical trial expense, but two major drivers of clinical trial expense are how many patients do you need and how long does it take to recruit those patients? And so as a hospital, if you're using some of these tools and they make a difference in how long it takes for you to get your patient population, then that can actually save you a lot of money because that total trial time is considerably shorter. And getting to either a yes or a no quickly is not only a time saver from sort of an operational, how long it takes to run a trial thing, but you get to your answer faster. And those answers can do crazy things to your stock price in terms of either crashing it completely if you say fail a phase three trial or creating a major bump. And, you know, so you want to get there faster if you can. Uh, The only other thing that I would bring up along these lines is there are more and more clinical trials which are focusing on very targeted patient subpopulations. 
And these subpopulations are often defined by genomic data. And so wrangling that data and those additional tests require architectures which are complicated. And there it becomes a bit of a UX problem because you need your clinicians to actually use the tools, which is a huge problem. And this, is, this doesn't just go into sort of this field, but clinical decision support as well. It's a massive issue, which is um, heretofore challenging. So, so something we were talking about before we started recording um, was that there are so many tools out there and it sounds like not just in this space, but in others, you know, the adoption rate of, of these tools and platforms and data resources, it sounds like that's a, a big theme here. Yeah, no, certainly. And I know regarding just how much innovation is going on here, it wasn't too long ago that I run a project where we looked into clinical trial startups and innovators. And I believe we, we looked at something like 300 different companies, you know, just to see how much people are trying to do things. But, but going back to your point, Jeremy, you know, yes, there's, there's been things that people have been trying to implement for a while, you know, and they're great ideas, you know, e-consent is, is one of them. You know, e-consent has been around for, for a few years now, and it's just, I know the idea behind it is great. Like, you know, people get electronic forms so that they can understand, you know, what's gonna happen, what are the, you know, the trials and that they can give consent for, I know the different kind of data that needs to be collected, needs to be analyzed, you know, things can change. So having that, you know, it's, it's a great way to just make things so much more easy and speedy. And it's just, has not been adopted enough. I was, I was reading, I know not very long ago that only 2% of the centers are using e-consent across all their trials. You know, it's, it's, and it, it just seems, um, I know <laughs> such a, such a silly thing not to implement, but, you know, these things take time, you know, there's a lot of systems that need to be upgraded. There's a lot of people that are just used to do things a certain way. And then when you can't use it for all, people just decide, okay, we'll revert to the old system that we know works and it's going to be working for everyone. I mean, look, there, there's an important thing to keep in mind here, right? It's doctor time and even nurse practitioner time is so tightly regulated, right? They are so busy that you know, if you only have a few minutes and you have to run, you know, 10, 20, 30 patients in a day, where if you see them for longer than 15 minutes, uh, you have a talk with the administration, uh, it's the task switching cost is real. I mean, often when you have these kinds of new innovations, one of the challenges is it takes time to learn and it's time a doctor might not have. And even when they learn it, as a new tool, it will probably not save them much time until they get really used to it. So there's a period, and this comes with adoption of, you know, most technologies, there's some sort of experience curve attached to it, right? Where when you're using it at first, even though it might be a better tool, it's not the one you're familiar with. So it runs slower for you. And when you're making the decision, then if you're under a time constraint, you go with the faster tool. Uh, as a little bit of funny trivia, this is why we're still using QWERTY keyboards, right? It's QWERTY is a terrible keyboard. It's designed to make you type slowly so you don't destroy a typewriter. Uh, there, are there are typewriter or there are keyboard orientations which allow you to type much faster. We don't use them because we don't 
have the inclination to relearn typing because with the new keyboard orientation, we'd be much slower for a while. I still use a QWERTY keyboard. I'm sure most people do. Go ahead, Joel. Yeah, no, I think that that raises a, a very interesting point, which is, I know the the difficulty then on on handling, I know all this data that's generated. It goes, I know, right back to the beginning. You know, so we we have electronic patient records, right? It's it's pretty much a standard nowadays, but a lot of data it's probably still not uh, completely codified. You know, a doctor will go and just add a note to, to your patient, right? And that's something that happens, I know, throughout their history. When you need to pick a patient for, for a clinical trial, if you want to make sure, you know, what Ryan was saying, you know, that you need a very specific population, you need to make sure that they, you know, fit all those boxes, you need something that's going to need to, to understand, uh, hey, what are these, you know, pages and pages of notes that are here, you know, do, you know, are these going to make a difference on the people that we're selecting? And of course, there's, you can't have someone review those manually. So that's one interesting innovation that I've seen both in, I know, at the beginning of the process in terms of recruiting, you know, finding the right centers, the right patients, et cetera, which are, you know, AI tools that can really understand both the structured and the unstructured data to, you know, tell you, hey, here is the right patient population. These guys are going to be eligible. You know, here's, here's where you should go. Um, you know, and I think you know one tool that's been very in vogue has been the, the Mendel AI, uh, but I'm, I'm you know there's a few others working in that space. So you guys have brought up a lot of logistical challenges. Um, you know, the getting there, finding the right patients, um, the staff themselves who are administering these trials. The the kind of question I want to ask to put the capstone on this is, with every patient situation being so unique and all these circumstances factored in, how sure are we that the clinical trials process and data is, is trustworthy, you know, that it'll reflect the results that a new patient will, will have that wasn't part of the trial? So maybe I can start and then uh, Ryan, you can, you can close it out. Um, That's great. So yeah, you know, that goes back to having a proper design of the clinical trial and then goes back to one thing that Ryan mentioned, which is, you know, selecting the, the right population, diverse enough population, you know, so that's something that's, you know, researchers need to be very careful when they're, you know, picking up what is it they want to study in their drug to kind of ensure that, hey, we're going to select a population that, I know, fits the, the disease and the target we're trying to, you know, to get with this drug. But at the same time that, you know, we're not excluding, uh, you know, enough people or we're not just being blindsided by, you know, whatever people were available to, to kind of uh, just leave uh, something out that's going to have an influence on the drug. You know, and that's you mostly see in terms of the drug not being I know, having a low efficacy for certain groups or just having side effects that you might have missed because your trial wasn't inclusive enough. And that's something that you typically do when you increase uh, on the size. Like when you go to your phase three, that's when you have a large enough population that should allow you really to understand, okay, what are the potential side effects, you know, and then everything that you might have missed uh, from when looking to more targeted populations. Um, that's overall, Ryan, I know if you want to add something there or go more on the safety part. I mean, that basically covers it. Um, you know, there's going to be a certain amount of safety, but this is part of why it is expensive and complicated to run a clinical trial. The federal agencies that sort of oversee these trials are quite involved. If you design a bad study, you get told you've designed a bad study. And I mean, uh, 
not to put too fine a point on it, especially the later trials, there is so much at stake on the success or failure of a trial. And so much goes wrong when something is erroneous that, you know, you, you look for, and there are actually, so, <laughs> this could be a whole other episode. Um, there are anomaly and fraud detection tools uh, that use machine learning that are becoming more robust. And that is a very important and burgeoning element of hospital and clinical trial management. But that's something we may want to talk about moving forward because mistakes do happen, but they can be caught and there's an auditing infrastructure to catch them. Fair enough. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it for today. We hope you all enjoyed the conversation. If you're not subscribing to our podcast already, find us on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Our next episode, we'll be discussing infectious disease. And until then, thanks for listening.